Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Dot Katani. Hello, good evening. Now this week, find out how scientists have invented a genuine thinking cap that can boost your memory whilst you sleep. Also, how to repair the retina. British researchers have found out how to transplant cells into a damaged retina to restore vision. And we'll also be hearing why you might be a bit more like a sea urchin than you first thought. Also this week, we'll be exploring the science of the sound of music, including answering this age-old party trick. Why your voice sounds funny on helium. We'll be finding out what jazz and geometry and mathematics and music have in common with the help of Cambridge jazz musician and mathematician, multi-talented Mr Tim Gowers, who's in the studio, and the Open University's Robin Wilson. We'll also be hearing about a sounds new way to catch criminals, which is using an audio lineup. Quite literally, researchers now have some clever tricks up their, tr- up their sleeves which enable them to analyse voices. And Cambridge University's Kirsty McDougall's here to show us how it all works. And we want you to have a go too, because in this week's Kitchen Science, you'll be solving a crime for us. So listen out for that, it's coming up shortly. And if you're in the mood to win some stuff, then have a go at this week's teaser. Sticking with our sonic theme, we want to know which animal has the world's loudest voice. I personally think it's my mother. I think it's you. It's not. You should hear my mother, I tell you. If you know the answer, what animal has the world's loudest voice? You could be off to see the planets at the Cambridge Corn Exchange. Fantastic piece of music by Holst. And it's this Saturday. We've got a fantastic pair of tickets to give away. To take part or to uh, ask us any science questions for for inclusion in tonight's programme, just call in now. The phone number 08459 25 2000. You can text in on 07786 or you can email us chris at nakedscientist.com The Naked Scientist podcast powered by UK Fast the UK's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.net Now Kat, what's your memory like? Oh, sorry. I've forgotten already. I forgot where I am. Goldfish-like in my case. Well, you know, maybe you wish you were in at the University of Lübeck because there's a researcher there called Jan Bonn who's found out literally how to make a, well, I suppose the best way of putting this is a thinking cap because he recruited some groups of medical students and gave them some rather bizarre pairings of words to remember, like red and Byzantine, word combinations you wouldn't normally associate with each other, and asked them to remember as many as they possibly could and tested their ability to, to recall them afterwards. And then, in a second trial they put electrodes on their heads and when they went to sleep they stimulated their brains with what's called slow wave oscillation now when you first fall asleep or drop off your brain has these very characteristic brain waves which are this slowly undulating waves and scientists originally thought that they were really just what's called an epiphenomenon a sort of side effect of the brain going about its business of falling asleep but actually when these students were retested after they had this brain stimulation they performed significantly better at remembering these bizarre facts they've been asked to remember And what the researchers now think is that during this slow wave sleep, a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in laying down fresh memories, when you go to sleep, the hippocampus replays the experiences of the day. And during this replay, you get consolidation, the conversion of those short-term memories into long-term interconnections between nerve fibres that give you your long-term memories. And this this sort of slow wave sleep seems to be very important in doing that. And so by encouraging more of it, you make your memory better. 
I wonder if it can help me remember what I've done with my keys. Anyway, we've got another brain story. The human brain really is an incredible thing which allows us to recall past events in, in great detail as well as all sorts of facts and figures. But sometimes people can only remember parts of an experience while they can perfectly recall all the details of a different kind of experience. So, you know, people only remember some bits of an event. And researchers at the University of California have found a clue as to why might this, this might be. And they've been using a technique called functional MRI scanning to look at different regions of the brain. And this is a type of brain scan where you put someone in a brain scanner and you make them do something. And the scanner can monitor the activity in different regions of the brain uh, that are all doing different things. So while the people are carrying out a task, you can look at what their brain's doing. And the scientists tested 23 people by giving them a list of words. And the words appeared in different colours and in different areas on a computer screen. And then later on, they showed the people the words again, mixed with new words. And they asked them, can you remember which words you saw, uh, what colour they were where they were on the screen now the team this is really interesting the team found that some people could remember the words and that activated part of their brain um, they found that they could remember the color and that activated another part of their brain or if they could remember where the word was on the screen that was a different part of their brain but if they remembered all the bits together um, they found that a completely different region of the brain was lit up while they were doing the learning so this suggests that in order to remember everything about an experience or to to coordinate all these different memories you need to activate the special region of the brain which goes by the fantastic name the intraparietal sulcus so it's this region of the brain that integrates all the aspects of our memory and in fact people with brain damage in this region find it really hard to remember lots of detail about things so this this means and according to the lead researcher a chap called michael rugg this means that basically you can't get out of your memory what you don't put into it in the first place. and That's obvious, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it means that you have to remember things in the right way at the time. It's, it, you can't remember little details and interpolate the rest of it. So you have to have this right activation all at once to remember everything. What I think that's really interesting is it goes back to a guy called Roger Sperry who won the Nobel Prize almost 50 years ago or so, and he did some amazing work on what's called split-brain preparations. Um, sounds gruesome, but there are some people who have epilepsy and when they have epilepsy in one part of the brain, the epileptic effects can spread from one side of the brain to the other, and then they have what's called a grand mal seizure. They, they lose consciousness and have a full, full fit. And before we had very good drugs for epilepsy, some people had to be treated by surgery to try and get rid of the problem. And what they would do is to cut the connection between the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. And he was lucky enough to have access to the patients who'd had this done, and they were willing to help him in his studies. And he set up an experiment where you could show people on a screen which their right side of their brain could see, because the left eye, the, you know, everything on the right side of your of your body is seen by the left side of your oh, brain. I've and seen vice this versa. done. Yeah. If you put a picture on the right side of the brain, say it was a cup, that went to the left brain. Now the left side of your brain has language in it, and so the people were able to say, "I know what that is. It's a cup." But when they showed it to them on the left side of the brain, they knew exactly what to do with it because he could show them other objects that and say, well, what would you use with this? And if there was a saucer in front of them or a spoon, they could pick those up. But when asked, well, what is it? They, they didn't have a clue what the name of it was. And they had to actually literally swap it between hands or put it on the other side of their body. And then they were able to get access to the, the word memory, which was, it's a cup. So it just goes to show how distributed your memory is through different bits of the brain. It's fascinating. We were talking about this on last week's show, if you want to go and dig out the podcast and have a look at that as well. 
but one of the things that really singles the nervous system out is that it's very, very difficult to put it right when it goes wrong because it seems to be hardwired and locked in space. So when something breaks in your brain, there's not really very much capacity for it to repair itself. So we really need to have some kind of medical marvel to make that happen. And I think this week a very big step forward happened in this direction because a group of scientists at University College London led by Jane Soudan and Rachel Pearson have done just that because what they were able to do is to repair the retina. And the retina is actually part of the central nervous system. It's part of the brain. And what they did was to add to the retina stem cells or early precursor cells that can turn into other forms of cells into animals, not just healthy animals, but animals that had been genetically programmed to develop a disease very similar to a number of sight loss disorders that you see in humans. And and these include things like macular degeneration. And what the critical breakthrough they made was is that if you collect cells from this donor animal at just the right age when those cells are developing, one day after the animal has just literally been born, then those cells are just at the right stage of development to follow guidance signals inside the eye that tell those cells how to migrate into the right part of the retina and then turn into photoreceptors, the cells that take light and turn it into into electrical signals the brain can understand, and then wire themselves back in so you can restore vision. And what they found was that mice in which they'd done this procedure went from being blind to having what's called a pupillary light reflex. When you shine a light in the eye, the pupil got smaller, indicating that they seemed to be able to see. And electrical testing of the retina showed that they were indeed seeing again. So the question now is that it's not actually are we able to repair the retina it looks like we can the question is now can we get some cells that can do this because if we can we should be able to put right people who've got retinal problems and give them their sight back i'm really looking forward to that kind of research working because macular degeneration is something that happens as we get older and sort of seeing my granddad going through it i really hope there's some way to to fix it in the future but anyway right now you might not be feeling much like a californian purple sea urchin but let me tell you you're actually more like one than you might think and that's according to latest results from baylor college of medicine in houston now researchers there have been trying to uh, decode all the 814 million letters of dna that are found in a sea urchin's genome Um, and the reason for this is that sea urchins are actually very interesting. You may not think so. They have 23,000 genes in them, and they actually are thought to share a common ancestor with humans. Now, I don't mean like your granny, but a sea creature that lived around 540 million years ago. And this ancestor, part of you know, a group of these creatures evolved to be sea urchins that we have now, and another group evolved to be a group of animals called deuterostomes, and this includes humans and all other vertebrates, like creatures with backbones, like us and frogs and all sorts of things. Um, not spineless humans, maybe. Sea urchins are really interesting because they live a very long time, and researchers in Nova Scotia were making some measurements on sea urchins and working out how fast they grow, and, and they're really like humans in the, in the way that you say, because they grow very, very fast during their adolescence, and then they kind of get miserable because they're adolescent and slow <laughs> down their growth. They probably paint themselves black as well, who knows? But then they really slow down their rate of growth, and this means that because people have based their size on how fast they grew when they were little, they didn't think they were very old. But when they actually monitored older sea urchins and watched how fast they grew, some of them are 200 years old. Well, it's interesting because sea urchins, their genes are actually very similar to humans. We share most of our gene families um, with sea urchins, though we have slightly more genes in each family. But Is that why you've got a prickly personality? Exactly, a poisonous. Um, but 
the really intriguing thing is that sea urchins have these genes that make sensory proteins. These are important for vision and hearing. And these proteins in humans are important for vision and hearing. But here's the rub. Sea urchins don't have any eyes or ears. Um, they have all their sensory organs in this kind of tube-like appendage called a tube foot. Um, so basically, this sea urchin has all the, the precursors of our sensory system and we've evolved through time. So it shows that basically all the creatures on Earth are using very similar genes and proteins. It's a bit of a downhill life, isn't it? It's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat, and we are taking your questions. If you have anything science you want to ask us, chris at nakedscientist.com. Another reason for getting in touch is to have a go at our teaser, Cat. We want to know this week, the teaser is, what animal has the world's loudest voice? Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Time now for kitchen science. And it's going to be a little bit different because rather than rummaging around in your kitchen, you need to do a bit of armchair science this week. You're going to have to use your ears and do some detective work for us. Now, I want you to have a really, really good listen to this. Uh, but I didn't mention you at all. They kept on pushing for your name, and uh, I, I said no uh, almost every time. I, I almost uh, slipped up when I was talking about uh, driving home in the car, and apparently they've got a, a photo of both of us in the car. Um, and I also, uh, they, were, they were asking about the DIY shop um, and asking if I knew a Robert Freeman who worked there, and I said if I did know a Robert Freeman, uh, he doesn't work there, and that kind of got their back up. Okay, now I hope you were listening to that very carefully because that was the voice of a man who's been making some threatening phone calls. Thankfully, the police have managed to find a number of potential suspects and they've taken them in for questioning. And after recording the interviews, they've created this audio lineup. So, in other words, voices of all the six subjects have been lined up one after the other. We want you to have a listen through them and see if you can recognise who you heard speaking the first time. So, each voice in the audio identity parade has been numbered one to six and you're going to hear them now. So, listen up. Voice one. I don't know Robert Freeman. No, it doesn't doesn't ring a bell at all. Voice two. No, no, that name doesn't ring a bell. I don't think I've ever met anyone of that name. Voice three. Um, no, I don't know anyone um, by that name. Voice four. No, I don't know Robert Freeman. I don't know Robert Freeman and I wasn't there. Voice five. As we've already said, I, I, don't, I don't know any... I don't know any Robert Freeman. Voice six. I don't know anyone by the name of Robert Freeman. So who done it? Phone in and tell us whether it was voice number one, two, three, four, five or six and we'll tell you the answer and how this method is being used to solve real crimes at the end of the show. Cat. And if you get the answer right, you can win a copy of Dr Chris's new book, which is called Naked Science, available now. He might even autograph it for you, leave a big kiss in it or something like that. Get calling in now. Who do you think done it? 08459 25 2000. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Kat, and Dr Chris over there. We've had an email in from Bobby Carr, and he's age 17, from Ohio in the United States. He says he loves the show, he loves our British accents. Uh, we'll be talking about accents later. And he said that he's got a question. He wanted to know if we know the answer. Why does your hair turn grey as people get older? Now, I think this is because your hair is coloured by pigments um, that are in your hair. 
um, including things like melanin. And as you get older, your cells just get a bit rubbish at making it. And so, in fact, it's not grey hair necessarily. It's just losing all its pigment. So this is why you end up with completely white hair. And grey hair is just a, a hair colour on the way towards that. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Hair is made of keratin. That's the same stuff, actually, that fingernails are made from. That's why the end of your fingernails, the bits you clip off, are white. It's keratin, which is a protein. And on your head, you have hair follicles, which are specialised for making keratin. And you have a population of cells, which, as Kat says, are melanocytes, the same cells that give you a suntan. They make the pigment, which is coloured. It's a dark browny black colour called melanin. Its job is there to mop up ultraviolet and protect the skin. But when the hair is being made, lots and lots of these keratinocytes, keratin-containing cells, are squashed flat and some melanin is painted onto them and they all get squeezed together and and out through this tiny nozzle, which is a hair follicle, and you have a hair. Now, for some reason, and we don't really know why this is, the melanocytes burn out as you get older and they stop making melanin and then the hair just reverts to its natural keratin colour, which is white. But I want to know, why is it that you see people who are very dark skin, for example, people sort of black origin, but they can have completely grey or white hair? So obviously they've still got melanin in their skin. It, exactly. There's something very strange about the melanocytes, the cells that pump the melanin into the hair, and, and they're different in some way to the ones that are in the skin, because you never see people's skin getting paler with age, really. They don't really happen to have that problem. So there must be something special about hair, and uh, I think the, the people that make Just For Men and you know Grecian 2000 and everything will be delighted if we could find the answer because they presumably would patent it and then they could sell us all the solution. I wouldn't know what you're talking about with the Grecian 2000. Maybe you do. Well, I've got sort of blondie coloured, haven't I? So I'd have a job sort of, I think I'd stand out a bit bit far if I stained my hair black with it, but it's quite funny when you see these people, isn't it, when they have sort of blonde hair and you think, oh, beautiful blonde hair like that, fancy dyeing the roots black. (laughs) We've got another quick question here from Brian and he wants to know, what is a mosquito eating when it's not eating me? It's interesting because I've got, uh, from Wesley Sutton, I've got the same thing. Wesley's in uh, New York and he says, why is it that mosquitoes bite you? It can't just have lunch and run off. It has to leave you itching. I don't see how it helps uh, a mosquito to make you itch. Seems better for you not to know that it's even been feeding. Uh, Well, I guess we could sort of tackle both of those. Which do you want to do? Um, Well, I guess that mosquitoes, uh, when they're not eating you, they're probably eating all other warm-blooded mammals. Yeah, they do. There's a really interesting um, thing in the journal PNAS this week and stop scratching you're making me feel itchy there's a really interesting paper in PNAS the journal this week and scientists have looked at poison arrow frogs and uh, it turns out that they fall prey to mosquito bites too but because they've got their poison arrow frog venom which is these uh, class of compounds called pomeliotoxins actually they kill mosquitoes really well and some scientists have done these experiments where they've taken a membrane which is designed to be a bit like frog skin and impregnated it with different concentrations of this frog toxin and when the things come fluttering down to try and land these Aedes aegypti yellow fever mosquitoes promptly keel over and die <laughs> so Take that. the, the yeah. frogs have got this defense mechanism to keep off the mosquitoes but what mosquitoes also eat uh, the male mosquitoes are not interested in blood it's only female mosquitoes that suck our blood because they need a protein rich diet to to actually lay enough eggs to breed because it's down to the females to do the breeding bit the males and, uh, and females when they're not breeding just drink sugar they love sugary, fruity things, so um, Culex mosquitoes, people have actually discovered genes in them that switch on when the day length gets short, so the mosquitoes know that it's winter time coming and they need to sort of tank up for the winter, and they don't breed very much in winter, so they just increase their sugar intake and decrease their blood intake, and there's a set of genes that help them do it. 
absolutely fascinating. Anyway, enough talk of mosquitoes and things that are making me itch. Um, we're going to hop over to the States for Bob and Chelsea's science update. This week they look out into the solar system to find out why the sun has caused the extinction of a number of animal species, unfortunately not mosquitoes, and how solar flares are set to cause havoc with GPS receivers. This week for the Naked Scientists, the sun takes centre stage. I'm going to talk about a new discovery of how solar flares interfere with GPS receivers. But first, Chelsea has this story on how the Earth's orientation with respect to the sun may affect the rise and fall of species. Not all extinctions are due to comet strikes or overhunting. In fact, new research shows that long-term cycles in the Earth's orbit and the tilt of its axis may be responsible for a regular rhythm of species extinction and creation. Paleontologist Jan van Dam of Utrecht University in the Netherlands found the connection by charting turnover in the fossil record of rodent species. We found periods of two and a half million years and another period of about one million years. And these are exactly the same frequencies which describe variations in the, well, in the orbit of the Earth and in the tilting of the Earth. So that made us think that there could be a connection. Van Damme says these cycles in Earth's orbit and tilt may have caused periods of global cooling, which in turn could have caused some mammals to perish while others flourished. Thanks, Chelsea. Scientists have discovered that powerful solar flares can cause some GPS receivers to fail, including the kind used by airplanes to navigate. Cornell engineer Paul Kintner says it's lucky they found the problem now when the sun is at its lowest point of activity during its 11-year cycle. GPS is primarily entering our technical infrastructure during the period of solar minimum. Solar maximum will be about 2011, and it will probably be larger than the past solar maximum. That's the current predictions. So one of the reasons we're publishing these results is so people know that while they become used to uh, GPS not being affected by space weather, in several years, it will be affected by space weather, and they should be aware of that. Kintner explains that the radio waves that accompany strong solar flares happen to be in the same frequencies used by GPS and can confuse certain receivers. What's more, the flares could affect the entire sunward side of the planet. Kintner says that now aviation officials know about this, they're creating backup plans to prevent a disaster, although passengers will probably have to deal with space weather delays in addition to the normal terrestrial weather ones. What really worries them, though, are the other systems that may not have backup plans. See, GPS is, is wedded into our uh, infrastructure in ways that many people are not fully aware of. For example, uh, the U.S. power grid is synchronized uh, using uh, GPS receivers. Uh, many parts of the Internet are synchronized using GPS receivers. Uh, some uh, secure financial transactions uh, use GPS receivers to assure that the, uh, that the transaction, uh, once it's been launched, is received promptly and has not been waylaid uh, in between. Uh, so the, the whole issue of timing is also part of the uh, utility of GPS, and those may very well be affected. He says GPS is just one example of why new technologies should be adopted with caution and the expectation that unexpected problems will arise. Thanks, Bob. Next week, we'll talk about some new robots that have been inspired by animals, in particular, rats and snails. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Well, and as they found out, and every good comedian knows, timing is... Uh everything anyway thanks guys if you want to hear more science news from bob and chelsea you can check out their website which is www.scienceupdate.com and if you're in the mood to win some stuff with me and dr cat here on the naked scientist this week all we have to do is have a go at our simple teaser and we want to know what animal has the loudest voice 
laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. And you're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Kat, and with Dr Chris. We've had some answers in, in our teaser. John in Peterborough, he's on the right lines. Tom in Stowe Market, he says a howler monkey. Not quite right. Um, David in Milton says a bullfrog. Nope, I'm afraid you're wrong. What is the animal with the loudest voice? Get calling in. Um, we've also had some answers on our audio lineup. Um, here we have Maggie in Galston. Yeah, she's definitely along the right lines. Brenda in Poinland. I'm afraid you're wrong. Bad luck. Condemn the wrong person. In fact, Kirsty McDougall will be in the studio to tell us about this audio lineup and how researchers are doing it forensically, in other words, analysing voices to pinpoint and finger criminals. She'll be telling us how that works later on. But keep your calls coming in if you have any questions about the science of sound. The phone number 08459 252000. Email chris at com, or you can text in on 07786 201960. And now it's time to talk to Tim Gowers from the University of Cambridge. Now, it's really great of you to join us. Hello. Hello. And we want to find out about the sort of the, the maths of music, because it's always said that, that music and maths are very interlinked. So I heard a great quote that um, the joy of people listening to music is, the, is just the joy of humans counting. That was a, a great quote. But can you tell us a little bit about the basics of music? So what are, what's a scale, what are notes, and how do they fit together to make things that sound good? Well, um, a scale is basically any sequence of notes that goes up in smallish steps. So a very, very simple scale, which I'll just play as a major scale, which goes like this. Um, and then there's also a minor scale. This is called the harmonic minor. So what's different scale according to Les Dawson? <laughs> <laughs> what's different about that scale? Well, for some reason that's uh, not very easy to explain, the minor scale sounds sort of sad and the major scale sounds happier. If I play a chord based on the major scale, that sort of makes you happy for reasons that I can't begin to try to explain. Um, but it's just a fact. And then that one sounds sadder. Um, so you have this sort of link between um, the kinds of intervals you use. This is called a major third. And this is a minor third. And um, so you can get sort of emotion into your music just according to what intervals you use. Does it matter which culture you come from, Tim? If people interpret that as a, as a sad sound and a, and a happy sound, or is it just us here in, in, in Cambridge that think that major chord sounds good and the minor one sounds more miserable? That, to me, sounds like a very interesting scientific experiment that should be done, and perhaps it has been done, but um, I don't know. Um, but we, we have a... in the. So in Western music, and particularly in Western classical music, we have a very strong idea of what, what a scale is, what a major scale is, and what a minor scale is. But how about other cultures? Do they use the same scales that we do? Well, no, very far from it. And uh, even within Western culture, if you talk about something like jazz, then there's a whole um, array of different scales that are not the conventional major and minor scales. So these are modal scales, aren't they? Um, some of them are modal and some of them are more complicated things. Play some jazz uh, scales then. Well, here's a scale that's used a lot in jazz. It's called the diminished scale, or in jazz it's called the diminished scale. Actually, some classical musicians refer to it as the octatonic scale. Uh, and I can explain how it's produced, but let me just play it. That sounds really weird. Well, it has a very characteristic sort of sound. And the way you get it is extremely simple. You just go up, um, first by a semitone. That's the smallest interval that there is. That's, that's that interval. So you go up by a semitone. And then you go up by a tone. And then you just alternate. You go up by a semitone, then a tone, then a semitone, then a tone, then a semitone, then a tone, then a semitone. 
and then a tone. If you just keep alternating it, you get that um, scale. And part of the reason, I think, that it's got that uh, sound that you describe as weird... Is That's a scientific term. Yes, but it's got a sort of scientific basis to it, because this interval here, called the diminished fifth... Ooh. There's something about it that's a bit sort of strange, and if you play this um, octatonic scale, it's got a lot of of those um, diminished fifths in it, and I think that's somehow what makes it strange. And there is even a mathematical reason for why the diminished fifth sounds a little bit odd, which is that the ratio of the frequencies of the two notes uh, that are diminished fifth apart are not close to any nice um, whole number ratio, and somehow our ears seem to be sensitive so to this So we like fact. big, we like whole numbers when we're we listening. do. We nice, like nice sounding harmonies. We like things like an octave where the ratio is two to one, or a perfect fifth where it's three to two. When you say two to, what does that actually mean? Three to two, two to one, that kind of thing. Well, what that means is that the frequency of this note, in other words, the number of um, times per second that the air is vibrating, is exactly twice. Uh, what it is for a note that's an octave below. And another mysterious thing is that these two notes, they're sort of different. This one's higher than this one, and yet they're the same. How can, how can that be? I wish I could explain it, but there's some psychological <laughs> fact about it. But what are you playing to, to, when you say these are different but they're the same? Well, I'm, they're, they're, in, they're the same in the sense that we call them both C. That's a C, and that's a C. There's something about the fact that the, the ratio of two to one that makes us perceive it in the same way. If I play a chord down here... One would say it's the same chord, only higher, or there was, something. There was a really interesting paper in Nature about this, I think, last year, where they were trying to work out actually what bits of the brain are responsible for that, making things that are different ends of the keyboard but the same notes, making people think that they sound the same. But so you, you mentioned that sound, the semitone sound. Play a semitone chord. There. OK, now that one sounds also a little bit it on the weird horrible. side. It sounds horrible. I mean, that, to, to our ears, to my ears, certainly, that's a bit uncomfortable, but has our sense of what makes good harmony or what makes a nice sounding chord, has that changed over time or is that just the conventions of music? Well, no, it's changed a lot. And so uh, a, a long time ago, people even found major thirds, which we like. They found those very dissonant and they only liked sort of things based on fifths and octaves. So this is your medieval kind yes, of Yes, or maybe even, yeah. So when listening uh, to jazz, Tim, um, what sorts of mathematical progressions tend to dominate jazz to, to make it have that jazzy sound because it has a very characteristic almost like a fingerprint sound i suspect we can ask kirsty later if you analyzed a bit of jazz with a computer you'd see patterns cropping up that would almost say this is definitely jazz right well there are various things that go in to make the characteristic jazz noise and one very important one is rhythm but um, also the harmony is um, extremely characteristic. Uh, it's not exclusive to jazz, because actually the harmonic language of jazz is quite closely related to certain sorts of classical music, particularly French composers like Debussy and Ravel. But one of the chords that really stands out in jazz is the seventh chord, mm. which is this. So here's the, the bass note. This is the seventh, because if you go up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then this is the third, one, two, three... That chord, if you play that and then put some other notes on top, you get very um, immediately sort of jazz-sounding jazz. chords. Nice. Now, I suppose we should point out, Tim, that you're actually, you're actually the Rouse Ball Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge University. So is this something that is part of your research, or is this something that, as a mathematician, you got interested in, in the mathematical side of music? Um, yes, it's certainly not part of my research, because my own feeling is that the mathematics that goes into music is 
reasonably simple. So I, I don't think that uh, really complicated maths has much to say about music, although maybe somebody could put me right on that. So I would say that just the fact that I'm a mathematician gives me certain ways of thinking about music and ways of describing it, but uh, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm using complicated maths to uh, make interesting statements about I mean, it's, music. It's often said that people who are mathematicians are, are more musical or musical people are better at mathematics. Do you think that's true? Because I'm quite musical, but I'm absolutely rubbish at maths. Well, I've got a, my own sort of thing that I like to say about this question, which I get quite a lot because I'm interested in both mathematics and music. My feeling is that both mathematics and music are dealing with abstract ideas, so it's not too surprising that uh, there's some kind of connection between it. But in a way, it's a bit like asking whether football and cricket go together. And then, of course, in a sense, they do. If you're good at football, then you're probably reasonably coordinated, so there's a reasonable chance that you'll be good at cricket, but it doesn't mean you definitely are good at cricket. So I think it's one of those things where there's a, a slight connection, but it's perfectly possible to be good at one without the other. It's Tim Gowers from the... Uh, mathematics department. He's Rouseball Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge University and also an accomplished jazz musician. Can you give us a quick flourish just uh, just before we move move on? Uh, gosh. We'll have to get him to compose our next theme tune for the Naked Scientist when we decide to, re- to rebrand it all. But if you'd like to join us on the programme and ask any questions of Tim and also waiting in the wings to have a chat to us is the Open University's Robin Wilson and he'll be talking a bit more about uh, how we use maths and music. Then call in now. It's 08459 25 2000. Email me, chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Now, if you cast your mind back to the beginning of the programme, we said that we were going to have an audio lineup. Someone had committed a heinous crime, and we wanted you from a from a, a lineup of possible criminal suspects to pick out the person's voice. Now, here's a reminder, just in case you missed it at the beginning. Remember, up for grabs is that uh, trip down to the Corn Exchange to see the Planet Suite. We got tickets for that. Uh, they're worth a lot of money, actually. Here's the perpetrator. See if you can recognise this first. Tune into this one. Um, but I didn't mention you at all. They kept on pushing for your name, and uh, I, I said no uh, almost every time. Now, can you recognise who that was from this lineup of six suspects? If you can pull them out of the hat, then give us a ring on 08459 25 2000, and you could be in the hat to win those prizes. Here it is. Voice one. I don't know Robert Freeman. No, it doesn't doesn't ring a bell at all. Voice two. No, no, that name doesn't ring a bell. I don't think I've ever met anyone of that name. Voice three. Um, no, I don't know anyone um, by that name. Voice four. No, I don't know Robert Freeman. I don't know Robert Freeman and I wasn't there. Voice five. As we've already said, I, I, don't, I don't know any. I don't know any Robert Freeman. Voice six. I don't know anyone by the name of Robert Freeman. So who done it? Number one, two, three, four, five, four, six. Get calling in 08459 25 2000. You can win tickets to the Corn Exchange or you can win a copy of Dr. Chris's book, Naked Science. We've had some answers in already. Graham in Norwich, I'm afraid you're wrong. Ray in St. Office, Os- Osiths on the right line. St. Osith, actually. St. Osith. <laughs> um, we've also had some more answers in on our teaser. Rowena in Malden says, is it an elephant with the loudest voice in the world? No, it isn't. Bad luck. Dr Chris and Dr Cat, and we're talking about the science of music and we're also finding out about how maths and music can get together as uh, not-so-unlikely bedfellows, as we just heard from Tim Gowers at Cambridge University. Robin Wilson is Professor of Pure Mathematics at the Open University. Hello, Robin. 
Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Now, tell us a bit about your work and, and how maths and music, to your mind, go hand in hand. Well, as you know, I'm a professional mathematician. I'm also interested in the history of mathematics, but uh, ever since I was a child, I've been uh, a keen musician. I've, I've listened to music. I'm actually a recorder player, and I'm a singer. I sing everything from Monteverdi to Mantovani. And, uh, and music has been very much part of my life. I, I, as I say, I enjoy singing a lot. Uh, and uh, in recent years, I got more and more interested in the mathematical basis of music, uh, in things like scales that Tim was talking about and, and chords and so on. And also, uh, um, in, in some sense, in the, in the structure of music, the way, the way music is put together, because quite a lot of music has really got uh, a, a very mathematical structure to it, both in the, in the scales and the intervals, as I say, the, the, the underlying um, ideas behind the music, but also in the way that composers take ideas and use them in a sort of rather mathematical way to construct their pieces. So in... in Western music, our scales, they have 12 notes in them. Um, That's right. Is, is that by default, in, or are there other kinds of scales? How is our scale constructed? Well, our scale is com constructed from these semitones that Tim was talking about. We start off with C uh, uh, on the white notes, and then you go up to C sharp. I've got my recorder here. And so on, you go right up to the top C, which has the uh, frequency of twice the lower one, as Tim was saying. There are 12 notes, C, C-sharp, D, D-sharp, and so on, up to uh, B and C. So the 12 notes in the octave, and that's what we are used to uh, when we listen to Western music. But there are other cultures around the world that use different numbers of notes. For example, if you listen to, an, uh, to a Balinese gamelan orchestra, uh, that's based on a on a scale with seven notes in it. Quite a lot of Eastern scales have got seven. Uh, some Chinese scales have got no fewer than 53 notes in, in, in the octave. Uh, and, and, and one very interesting one is, is the number 31, uh, because there are, are actually some keyboards with 31 notes in the octave. And the reason that they, they, they have these particular numbers, the reason that 31 and 53 come in, is because if you actually take... Um, take that number of, of notes in the octave, then you can get very, very accurate uh, thirds, fourths and fifths. The f thirds, fourths and fifths you get are very much, uh, very much in tune. So we have an example of this now, um, which is a piece of music called Organum that you've given us. So uh, run it, Chris. Let's have a listen. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage, whose world or mine or theirs, or is it of none? That's a piece of music with, based on a 31-note scale, so there's 31 notes in the octave. But returning now to, to Western music, um, how long have we really worked out the 12 notes that, we're, that we use now? The 12 notes have been around for a long time. The, the ancient Greeks, uh, they, they were interested in linking up ratios of notes with numbers. Again, Tim mentioned that, that if you have an octave, it's, uh, the ratio is 2 to 1, and then uh, a perfect fifth is 3 to 2, and so on. And right up till, say, about the 1300s or so, uh, much of the music that was around used octaves, fourths, and fifths. Uh, if you listen to some church music, you'll see a lot of those, you'll hear a lot of those octaves, uh, fourths, and fifths. But but then as music progressed, as, as, as the years went on, uh, other 
uh, intervals came in, like thirds and sixths and so on. And, and, and um, it turned out to be quite possible to play music in one key, but if you tried to, to play music in another key using those same ratios, that, it, that things sounded very much out, out, of, out of tune. Uh, and this is why they had to bring in what they call an equal-tempered scale, which is what, we, what our pianos are tuned on now, so you can actually play in any key you like. I remember learning about Bach's well-tempered clavier, isn't that? Because that's when they'd finally worked out how to tune pianos or keyboard uh, instruments. It, it was certainly around that time that there were lots of tunings going, 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 going on. Uh, it's still somewhat controversial as, as to whether Bach used the equal-tempered system or whether he used other tunings for his, his, his writings. But the idea of the well-tempered clavier was actually to play pieces in all, uh, all 24 keys, major and minor. Brilliant. Absolutely fascinating. Thanks very much for that, Robin. Cheers. Now, it is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat, and we're talking about the science of sound. And in a second, we'll be talking to Cambridge University's Kirsty McDougall, who has brought us in this audio lineup we asked you to listen to, Did You Catch the Crook? Well, we'll be finding out shortly. But if you want to win some stuff this evening, I've got a copy of my book, which is Naked Science, which is very much based around the same structure as The Naked Scientist, same sort of funky, quirky science stories. It's in all the bookshops, but I'm going to give you a signed copy if you can win this evening. Also, we've got tickets for courtesy of the Cambridge Music Festival, which has been on this week, to go and see at the Corn Exchange at the Planets. And a simple teaser for you to get your head around, what animal has the loudest voice? We've been looking at a few different musical instruments so far this evening, but we all have one that we can all use, and that's our voice. So we use our voices to sing, but now Anna Lacey and Dave Ansell have been looking at another question relating to the sound of the spoken word. The question we're going to try and answer is... Why your voice sounds funny on helium? So one of the answers people usually give for this is that the helium makes your vocal cords tighter unless you get a higher sound, but that's not actually the case, is it? No, your vocal cords are doing exactly the same thing in helium and in normal air. OK, so tell me, what's actually happening when we speak and make a sound? Well, your vocal cords make all sorts of different frequencies down in your throat, and your throat and your mouth select some frequencies and make those much stronger. You can see why that is with this roasting tray down here. So now what we've got here, we've got a roasting tray on Dave's kitchen table here full of uh, about an inch of water. What are you going to do with it? Basically, I'm just going to wobble it. I can wobble it at all sorts of different speeds, at different frequencies. And most frequencies, not a lot interesting happens. It just gets a bit wavy. Now, if, on the other hand, I pick this frequency, every time I wobble my hand, I'm strengthening that wave, and it's reflecting off the other side, and it's coming back, and I strengthen it again and again and again. So it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What we can see here is Dave's kind of whooshing the tray backwards and forwards. And, uh, yeah, there's just one big wave that goes to the other side, hits the side, comes back, and then Dave's ready to push the tray again to sort of throw the wave back again. Uh, so, so what now? Well, I could wobble this tray at any frequency, but it's only this frequency and actually double it and triple it and a whole series like that, which will get amplified like this. Uh, OK, so, so now we've seen this water going backwards and forwards. You know, what is that and what's that got to do with our voice? Well, this effect is called resonance, this strengthening of certain frequencies. Now, as I was saying earlier, your vocal cords make a whole series of frequencies. And as the sound waves go backwards and forwards, well, they'll reflect off your mouth and will go backwards and forwards up and down your throat and mouth. A bit like we just saw with the waves going backwards and forwards in the tray. Yeah, exactly. So they'll tend to strengthen some um, frequencies over others. Now, waves move much faster in helium than they do in air. So if it was in my tray, it would be like the wave going backwards and forwards much quicker. So in order to get this amplification effect, I'd have to wobble the tray faster. So higher frequencies would get picked out. 
So really what's happening is sound travels much faster through helium than it does through air. So that means that when all those frequencies leave your vocal cords, they go through the vocal tract and then get reflected back and bounced around in your mouth much quicker. And like the waves in the tray, when the waves are moving quicker, the frequencies that you're picking out are also much higher. And a higher frequency equals a higher pitch. So when I speak on helium, the higher pitches are amplified, so it sounds silly. Okay, so Dave, of course, the last word obviously has to be with you. Well, I hope that makes sense to everyone, and everyone has a great evening. (laughs) Incredible. Who would have thought that Dave's Barry White tones could change so dramatically? There you have it. That's the reason why your voice sounds higher with a lungful of helium. It's because sound travels faster through helium than it does through air. Please do remember that although it sounds really hilariously funny, it can be very dangerous if you breathe too much helium. Not because helium's toxic, but because it means you don't get enough oxygen to your brain. So don't try it too much at home. We don't want you to pass out. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, that's me, and Dr Kat. And we've got about 20 minutes left, and coming up shortly, we're going to be finding out from Kirsty McDougall how you can catch people just on the basis of the sounds of their voice. But if you would like to win some stuff, don't forget our teaser this evening, what animal has the world's loudest voice, and it's not Dr Kat. If you want to take part, 08459 25 2000 on the telephone, text in on 07786 20 1960, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And we've had some interesting answers in the teaser already. Um, we've had Sybil in Sawston says, a gorilla. No, that's not the animal with the loudest voice a tasmanian devil says austin in chelmsford also wrong however uh, tom in milton you're along the right lines and roy in santa pola on costa blanca definitely along the right lines well it's great to welcome to the studio uh, this week kirsty mcdougall hi kirsty thank you for coming in hi now obviously people have been hearing all this stuff about uh, you know helium going in voices and things but first of all tell us you know what actually is your voice and how does it work Okay, so the voice um, is a bit like an instrument when we produce a vowel sound in that we've got the mouth and the throat acting as a resonator. So that's what we call the vocal tract. So you've got air coming from the lungs and passing through the voice box. Um, The vocal cords are vibrating very rapidly and um, this passage of air then has particular frequencies which are being emphasised by the resonator um, of the vocal tract, a bit like, say, the body of a clarinet or a flute. So, so why is it that some people, for instance, it's obvious you have a little sort of twang that says down under. Uh, you sound a bit different to me. Why, why is that? Um, so why do people speak with different accents? Um, different language communities or speech communities have agreed... Um, different targets for the sounds of the language and their way, the way they're going to realise them. So, um, for example, comparing my Australian accent with your British accent, um, the, wor- the vowel in the word park, P-A-R-K, how do you say it? Park. Park. Um, whereas <laughs> for me, it's, for me, it's um, park, which is produced with the jaw a bit higher and the tongue a bit higher and also more nasalisation. So yeah. for you, you've got your mouth... So it's all bit. learned, isn't it? It's all learned. It's it's agreed by the community and you, you learn your accent as a child. Um, those linguistic targets are set by the speech community and then you tend to... Um, well, I mean, I, I can do a sort of semblance of an Australian accent, and I apologise to any friends. So if I say, good eye, mate, you know, I mean, I can begin to sort of do that, but Rory Bremner does this brilliantly and takes off Tony Blair and all that kind of thing. So when I want to sound like you, to a certain extent, what am I having to do to, to try to work out 
how you're speaking and make my voice sound like you so that I can I could pass as you know if I was Rory Bremner doing Tony Blair I could pass as Tony Blair how's that done so do you mean changing your accent or, or mm. trying to well, sound like it, yeah, sounding I mean I guess sounding like someone else is is essentially tr- changing your accent to a certain extent isn't it um I think within a given accent community trying to sound like different individuals is not really about changing your accent that's about trying to adopt more individual habits um, within the way those speakers speak. Um, If you're trying to change your accent, then you'll be moving those linguistic targets from what the... um your own speech community has agreed to what the Australians or whoever they are. Yeah, we're very lucky because Kat has brought in some instruments, which I guess you, you're actually going to use these to demonstrate actually the difference between, uh, say, a man and a woman. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, I mean, in voice, vocal terms, yeah, hang on. So well, what we were going to demonstrate was um, the difference between the resonances of, say, the, the vocal tract of a woman and a man, and a vocal... Uh, female vocal tract is much shorter um, than a male vocal tract and so that's we were sort of going to mirror that with the clarinet. So what I have here is I have a normal B-flat clarinet. It's about uh, a metre long, made of wood, and it sounds like this when you play it. And then I have this rather impressive beast over here. This is proof that size is everything, actually, because this is enormous. What, what the hell is that? This is a bass clarinet. It looks, it's about the size of, bigger than a tenor saxophone. It's also based exactly on the clarinet. It's made of wood. It's a single reed instrument. But it's probably around two metres long, coiled up. Um, and it sounds like this. So it's exactly the same sort of timbre of sound. It, the, the two sounds are very similar. So you play the little one again. But the, I like the big one. The big one, it's a great <laughs> instrument. But it sounds much, much deeper because you know the, the instrument's just much bigger. It actually needs more air to put through it when I'm playing it. So, Kirsty, is breath. that a good analogue for what's going on in a man's voice box versus a lady's one? Um, well, it is in the sense that the female vocal tract is, is shorter than the male one. Um, but the different sounds that we produce, particularly vowel sounds... Um, in human speech involve adjusting the shape of the the resonator by moving your tongue and jaw and lips. Um, we're not changing the length of the vocal tract. Um, so, so does this mean that some people who are, are really good singers and sound really nice, they're like a single malt whiskey, they can sound great <laughs> on their own, you know, is it because they've got the perfect sort of head anatomy to give them the, the nicest resonances and the nicest... It's, the nicest setup. Maybe. It's to do with the anatomy, but also the control that they've um, learnt to develop. Thank you. That's Kirsty McDougall from the Linguistics Department at Cambridge University. And in a few seconds, we'll be finding out who was the culprits in our audio lineup. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. is the Naked Scientist, Chris and Kat, and we've been talking this week about the science of sound and music. we found out why helium makes your voice go squeaky, and uh, we've also found out about the science of, and the mathematics of music and scales and that kind of thing. But also, we want you to have a go at our quiz, which is what animal has the loudest voice? It's not Dr Katani. If you think you know the answer, you've got a few minutes left to come in. 08459 25 2000, text 07786 20 1960, or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com. Chrissy in the Costa del Sol thinks it's a hyena. 
No, it isn't. Bad luck. Um, we've had a quick email in here from Nicola Upson, who says uh, that she's loving the, the music and math show. And she says that, can we mention that both Robin and Tim are taking part in the Cambridge Music Festival that's got loads of events on this week. And you can find out more at www.cammusic.co.uk. And we've had a question in here. This is one for you, Chris, um, from Fred in Lowestoft. And he says, why is it that bubbles are always round? I'd have thought this is something to do with energy and lowest possible energy. Well, it's the thing that gives you the... It's all to do with surface area and volume ratio. Isaac Newton was one of the first people to work out how thick the film is on a soap bubble. His soap bubbles had a film of about 80 to 100 nanometers, so very, very thin. And it's the most efficient way to get the most gas in with the least film. And that, that's why a bubble is around and not a square or, uh, I don't know, some other funny shape. And also the energetics, as you mentioned. You, you've then got the film stretched in all directions so that the tension in the wall is the same in all possible directions. Now, uh, let's have a quick chat to Ray, who is on the line. Hi there. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. You reckon you know who this mystery voice person is? Well, I think it's number four. OK, shall we find out? Because what we've done is to shove all of them together. So you stay on the line and then we'll find out if you're right and we can ask Kirsty. Okay. Okay, hang on one second. This was our audio lineup. Have a listen. Uh, but I didn't mention you at all. They kept on pushing for your name, and uh, I, I said no uh, almost every time. That was a perpetrator. Voice four. No, I don't know Robert Freeman. I don't know Robert Freeman, and I wasn't there. And uh, that was voice four from the parade. So he, is he right, Kirsty? He is indeed. Absolutely correct. Well done, Ray. Uh, you have won yourself tickets down to the Cambridge Corn Exchange to see the Planet Suite for correctly identifying that. That's very well done. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Now, Kirsty, um, tell us what the point of, of doing this work is, how useful it is if, in real terms, and, and how you actually go about analysing voices like that. Because obviously you wouldn't be relying on a BBC radio audience to pull out <laughs> who, who the perpetrator was. You'd actually do this for forensic purposes, under closed doors, under wraps. Okay, so how do you do it? So this is for um, the situation where a witness has heard a voice at a crime scene um, and then thinks they might be able to recall the voice on a future occasion. Um, and so it's similar to an identity lineup. Um, only they're going to be picking a voice out from a selection. But can we do this by computer to do it better? Because obviously humans are fallible and I suppose the stress of a situation might distort someone's memory, mightn't it? Um, well, that's true as well. And this type of evidence um, is only used in a very limited number of... or number limited set of situations um, where the, the witness needs to have had a reasonable amount of exposure to, to the voice in question. But if you look at it with a computer, I mean, how, how do you use techniques and technology now to, to make an analyses of voices? OK, so in forensic cases, you can use um, computer analysis for a very different situation, which is where there is a recording of the voice. Although we had a recording of the perpetrator for the purposes of this radio thing, um, when you've got an ear witness who's um, listening to the voice of their attacker, then they're, they're not there with a tape recorder making a record of that voice. So computer analysis is not appropriate for... Um, for ear witness evidence, you use computer analysis um, if there is a recording of the voice. So that's a different kind of forensic case um, if there's been a recording made over a telephone or from a, a police bugging device, for example, a hoax 999 call, um, a ransom demand, that kind of thing that has been recorded. And then the phonetician might be asked to um, do an analysis of that recording. But that's a separate, separate situation from the 
the case that we were doing in the kitchen science today. And what what are the most distinctive parts of our voice? Because um, you think, well, we all you know have vowels and consonants. Are there any particular bits of our speech that are more distinctive than others? Um, well, this is a big problem for for forensic analysis. And although throughout the program you've been saying um, Cambridge scientists are. Um, solving crimes with the voice um, more often than not we're actually defending against problematic use of voice evidence um, and there's no 100% rel- reliable technique for identifying a speaker from their voice um, in the situation where there has been a recording made so we will make various measurements and um, compare with the recording of the suspect um, but didn't, didn't you have a look at the voice of Neil Armstrong on the moon though? Um, that wasn't me. It was in the like news you. a few weeks ago. Um, they were trying to decide whether, what was it he said, a man instead of man. One small step for man or one small step for a man. Yeah, so they were using um, some kind of computer analysis which would probably be similar to what we do to look at the acoustic representation of speech um, and try and detect whether there was a gesture for this vowel before the man word. I don't think it really matters, you know. <laughs> Come on, they put a man on the moon. Who cares what now, he said? Kat, um, what, one thing we've been asking people this week is, you know, what is the animal with the loudest voice? Are you going to put us out of our misery? I certainly will. Uh, it's not a howler monkey, it's not a bullfrog, it's not a hyena or a gorilla or a Tasmanian devil. It is a blue whale. Now, blue whales have absolutely phenomenal voices. They can get up to several hundred decibels. Was it 188? Um, it's 188 decibels, which is louder than a jet plane which is 140 decibels. Human shouting is about 70 decibels. I think my voice is a bit more. But um, yes, blue whales, they can, you can hear their sound for hundreds of kilometres under the sea. So yep, everyone who said blue whale is right. Who and won? In particular, the winner is Mike in Hawkwell. So you have won. You've probably won a copy of Dr Chris's book. I will, I sign, I will send you a signed copy, Mike, of Naked Science. The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. That's it for this week, and many thanks to our guests Tim Gowers, Robin Wilson and Kirsty McDougall, and also our fabulous production team Petro Minch and Anna Lacey. Next time we'll be diving into the deep freeze with a trip to Antarctica to find out what's under the ice, but for more science in the meantime, do check out the Nature podcast from nature.com forward slash nature. And if you'd like to send us any questions or feedback about this show, The Naked Scientist, then do drop us a line to chris at nakedscientist.com or you can drop into our science discussion forum, which is at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thanks for listening. See you next time.